145, verse 15 to 16, you'll find it on page 508. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. This is the word of the Lord. I was hoping you'd say that. Ah, good. (laughs) The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. This is amazing, isn't it? Uh, give us, just go a bit slower this time, because that is amazing words. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Johnny. Well, when hunger strikes, everything stops. Have you noticed that? Uh, Having spent a few years now as a father or in a worker around kids, I do wonder if there's anything worse than a hungry stomach and if there's anything better than a stomach that is full of food, especially for tiny babies. Nothing seems to wake them and get them unsettled like hunger. And yet the moment they're full, a food coma strikes. And down they go, putting them to sleep for hours until the next feed. For babies, every meal is like a Christmas feast followed by a nana nap. And though they contribute nothing to the provision of that food, they know precisely who to look to for the one who can satisfy their need for food at the proper time. And it's not just babies, is it? Animals are like this too. Our two dogs know precisely who to come to, where to look and where to sit and how to look longingly in just the right way for me, waiting for that food to magically appear from my hand as it does for them at the same time each day. And the local flies, ants, mosquitoes and deer population. All seem to know likewise precisely where to go day and night looking for a feed. And while I object to feeding that lot, not so the God of the heavens and the earth. For as we've heard in our passage, he opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing without prejudice. When it comes to food, Nothing looks to him in vain. Isn't that marvellous? Isn't that mind-blowing? From, from his open hand, at the proper time, he feeds every living thing. Everyone. From the smallest bacteria to the largest tree and every microbe, insect, flower, fish, bird, plant, animal and mammal, in between, everything looks to him for food and he satisfies them all. Well, this is the adoration claim that we are examining today in Psalm 145 from King David. And and while there's much here for us to feed our adoration of him, it's also going to raise some serious questions for us, questions I'm sure that are already on your mind, questions about the extent of God's provision. 
its timing, uh, the place of death in all that, and satisfaction of desire. Questions that deserve answers, especially for us humans who are constantly assessing whether God is worthy of our praise or of our rejection. So, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's examine this and let's put God to the test immediately, shall we? Let's, give it a, let's put him to the test in prayer, asking him to satisfy us as we examine this. And then we'll see by the end whether that's been true. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are hungry. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger and thirst for truth and understanding. And now we're looking to you to satisfy us. Would you do that? Would you show yourself worthy of our praise and adoration? And would you feed us now as we look to you to help us understand these claims, these things? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please keep your Bibles open there at page 632. Sorry, no, that's my page number. Yours is 508, I think. Uh, And you'll find an outline that we'll be following along. And we're already partway through that. Uh, Psalm 145, verses 15 to 16. David writes, we have it there in front of us. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food at the proper time, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Sure. Okay. Yet what is, well, what appears self-evident to David, it certainly wasn't to me. See, when I first started following the Lord Jesus at age 19, everything about God was new and everything needed to be learned from scratch. Standard, simple Christian habits like saying thanks to God for the food that we eat. Well, it took a long time for my family to even imagine it was a good idea, much less than it was important or obviously necessary. Why would we thank God for the food? I mean, we worked for it, paid for it, collected it, stored it, prepared it, cooked it and served it up. Where was God in all of that? Nowhere, as far as we could see. Until one of my spiritual dads at that time in the church revealed for me passages like this one here in Psalm 145 and then how this gets unpacked in other places in the Bible, like in Job verses, oh, sorry, chapters 38 to 40 and Psalm 104 and Genesis 9. And then, with my mind newly opened by the Scriptures and what's revealed there, like a veil had been removed from my eyes, I began to see God's hand of provision everywhere. Literally, everywhere. Because as the Scriptures had explained to me, God is the one who set the waters in their place with boundaries and seasons. That He makes the difference between life and death of everything. Every living Thing on the planet that he's the one who quenches the thirst of the animals and makes grass grow for the cattle to eat and plants for people to cultivate he is the one who supplies trees for the birds to nest in and mountains for the wild goats he's the one who set the heavenly bodies in place that bring periodic darkness so the beasts of the forest can prowl and hunt for prey 
and then the sun to rise so humans can go out to work and labour for our food till evening with the strength and skill that he has provided. He's the one who delighted to supply the verdant variety of foods for all living creatures at their proper time. And he's the one who defined the difference between carnivores and herbivores and omnivores. And he did, and he does all of it seamlessly without noticing. Until we do take time to stop and notice. And when we do, well, he is the God of wow. For example, did you see that footage of the enormous swarm of stingrays off Bondi Beach last week? Whoa. But for a drone pilot randomly checking for sharks, we would not have known they were passing by. But there they were, cruising along off the heads, heading from no one knows to only God knows, where he will next give them their food at the proper time. Small fish, prawns, worms, clams and the like. Meanwhile, stingrays moving in a swarm like that make them in turn an abundant food source for sharks, elephants, seals and killer whales to feast on a tasty stingray snack. Meanwhile, back on land this week, I was chatting with an old friend from Gunnedah lamenting the lack of winter rain out there, with wheat as the main winter crop around Gunnedah. Uh, without regular rainfall, it's going to be a lean harvest. So I wondered, how much rain? And where does the water come from to make that rain? Well, the Bible says that God provides it, sure enough, so look to him. Okay, so we pray. But for him to put it into the sky... Above Gunnedah, well, it has to be carried in clouds from the ocean where the stingrays are. Now, the nearest ocean being over 130 kilometres away, if the winds come from the east. Uh, but at this time of the year, the prevailing wind in Gunnedah is westerly, making the nearest ocean that direction over 2,000 kilometres away. That's a long way for water to travel. And for just two centimetres of rain to fall on one square kilometre of land in Gunnedah requires 20 million litres of water for just that two centimetres of rainfall, which is going to weigh something like 20,000 tonnes. That's pretty heavy, unless it has evaporated, so it can go up, and so it can stay up in a cloud. And it will only condense and go down again if each drop coalesces around tiny dust particles between one thousandth of a centimetre wide in the presence of an electrical field that stops them bouncing off each other. Right there. So the sky picks up millions of litres of water from the sea, leaves the salt and the stingrays behind carries the water in gaseous form for over 2,000 kilometres and then carefully dribbles it down in drops big enough to fall for a few kilometres through the air without evaporating and small enough to keep it from crushing the wheat. And then it goes back and does it again because it, to produce a good wheat crop in that one square kilometre of land in Gunnedah will require a minimum of 20 repeats 
of two centimetre rainfall on different days across precisely four months. Impossible? Yes! <laughs> but the crops and the living things that eat them look to the Lord to feed them at the proper time, and that's precisely what God does repeatedly across the fields of the world in just the right measure for just the right crops in just the right places and at just the right times. And that also includes when it doesn't happen. Those times when the water's too much and the crop rots and the beasts drown. And when the rain is too little and everything dies of thirst in a drought. Now from where we sit, those moments are terrible aberrations. They're desperate tragedies, natural disasters that we fret about, flee from and try to mitigate against. But there's much more to it, isn't there? For as difficult as these moments are for us, these are the times when God uses the large-scale death of crops and animals to open his hand and replenish the nutrients in the soil and to feed the insects and bacteria and microbes and birds and fish and everything else that feasts and lives on the large-scale death of plants and animals. He is utterly brilliant, isn't he? In God's provision for all living things by the cycles of permaculture, nothing is wasted. And at every point, the death of one thing always supplies food for something else as God opens his hand at the proper time to satisfy the particular, different, specific desires of every living thing. That's all a great wonder to me. It's a great wonder, isn't it? Uh, life and death, as observed by our scientists, it is the stuff of everyday marvels. And so, of course, we celebrate it. And of course, we long to preserve its beauty and to maintain natural resources. And of course, we take pictures and watch documentaries and love to go exploring. And we study it and get excited and then start positing living planet theories and attribute human qualities and invent Mother Nature fertility cults and religious theories that are focused on balance and cycles and reincarnation and then we sanitize it in music and film with the likes of Elton John and Disney combining to celebrate the circle of life that moves us all. And of course we humans do all these things. How else could we live amongst such expansive beauty and systematic brutality? Pure observation and experience leads us entirely in the direction of worship and awe. It just does. Unless, unless someone from the outside reveals something different. Of course, we're going to worship nature unless someone from the outside reveals something different, unless someone from the outside the system 
intervenes and reveals a bigger picture. And that is precisely what we have here with Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. For the, the Bible is God's word revealed, him speaking from the outside. It's him intervening into our world and revealing himself and all that he does and is doing and reveals it to people or anyone who is prepared to listen. And that's why David wrote what he wrote here. And so too Moses and all the prophets and the scribes and the apostles who recorded carefully God's interactions with humanity from the first moment that he opened his mouth and spoke so people would hear, understand and respond. And this is why, as we look at those things, God taught the Israelites by word and example that humankind doesn't live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this is one of those ways that God treats us humans different from every other living thing. He speaks and he sets us apart in what we eat and how we eat it and how we must and must not do it as his representatives caring for and cultivating the created order he's put in our care. And different to other living things, we need special instruction. Different to the animals, we need them. For without fail, plants and animals instinctively know to look to the Lord for food and satisfaction of their every need. And they willingly submit to the boundaries he has placed around them. But we humans don't naturally do that, do we? For God made us different to all other living things. He gave us power to respond at will to the random opportunities and circumstances that he lays before us. He's given us this power different to all other animals and plants and living things. And it's a power that we could use to praise him for what we find. But it's also a power that allows us to choose self-reliance instead. Self-determination instead. Self-definition instead. Self-glorification apart from him. As the one species on the planet that God has empowered to make up meaning for ourselves, we can use our words to describe and define and redefine things different to how they actually appear. And as we do this, and we do do this, we do it with a particular, specific, devoted focus on our desires. Oh, our desires... And they are powerful, aren't they? Our desires for satisfaction are for so much more than food. Have you noticed we've even started measuring happiness as a nation? We want more than just food. And that's why we all felt so uncomfortable and a tad let down by that phrase there in verse 16. I'm sure you noticed it, where David wrote, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Hang on a minute. Does he? 
Does he really? If that's true, then he is a bit of a letdown, isn't he? Because like Mick Jagger and Alexander Hamilton, I've never been satisfied and I can never be satisfied. For the eye never has enough of seeing and the ear never has its fill of hearing. For God has set eternity in our hearts. He set eternity in our hearts and we won't be satisfied until we hold eternity in our grasp. So right then, how do we get it? How do we get eternity in our grasp? We all have our theories, don't we? Meanwhile, God also tells us how to get it in our grasp. He reveals in the Bible that the way we get eternity is by looking to him to give it to us at the proper time. And that's what was going on when at just the right time, when we were still powerless, God sent his son Jesus to die for the ungodly. God sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As Jesus explained, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Because Jesus is food for eternity, believing in him, living by faith in his promise, well, that's what guarantees not only our place in the new heavens and the new earth, but also that there will be a resurrection of all living things in the new heavens and the new earth. All living things alongside us. Death defeated, eternal resurrected life begun... That's the eternal future of every living thing that looks to him to satisfy our desires. That's the good news God has revealed in the gospel. That's the gospel outcome that God has provided in Jesus for all who look to him. And that's why continually looking to him while we await the proper time, is so important to continually look to him. And it's the constant challenge, isn't it, of living by faith as God's beloved people. And that's that amazing reminder in the Lord's Prayer that we have, isn't it, when we say, give us today our daily bread. Reminding us that we remain dependent on God to supply our daily needs just like the animals do and that he can be trusted with our daily needs and our eternal desires as well looking to him is so important that god provided a living example of how this works and how this doesn't work in david's ancestors who lived before david wrote this psalm and their experience was laid out and revealed for us in the scriptures so that we could learn from it so that we would well, so that we don't miss out on satisfaction of our desires in eternity by following their example of disobedience to God's word. Because that is what happened in the Exodus, isn't it? Remember that? 
we read in Exodus that after God rescued them from Egypt and set them heading for the promised land, the first thing they grumbled about was hungry stomachs. And when hunger strikes, everything stops. Everything ground to a halt, including their obedience to God. As they remembered the food back in Egypt, all the leeks and the melons and the things that we used to eat. Sure, they were subject to slavery and there was certain genocide back there. But hey, at least there was food to eat before we die. Unlike in this barren, foodless, wilderness walk to God only knows where. But this was a lesson. This was God teaching them that he can be trusted both with food and with every desire. Both things. And they needed to learn. They needed to learn that they did not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from their mouth. Now, in their experience of that hunger, they decided that God had cut off their supply of food in order to harm them. That's what they decided. But his lesson, his actual lesson, was to cut off their food supply in order to bless them with something greater. With depending on him and contentment and finding contentment in his faithfulness in the midst of their helplessness. That was the lesson. To find, to have dependence on him and find contentment in his faithfulness in the midst of their helplessness. Because that's what they needed to live forever, not just another day. And that lesson remains. So how do you go with this lesson from God? This constant lesson. Do you ever get fixated on controlling what you need in the moment that you overlook the giver who gives more than just the moment? Does your reach for swift satisfaction for temporary desires, does it get in the way of you looking to God both for that and more than that? Does your fear of death ever stop you from living for him who offers eternal life beyond death? And can God really be trusted to deliver our satisfaction? Can he really be trusted? Well, this is the decision every human continually makes, isn't it? This is the decision before us every single day. And those Israelites in the wilderness, well, despite the daily evidence of God supplying precisely enough food being delivered from the sky, not not just rain this time, but food from the sky every morning and every evening, perfectly portioned sufficient to feed more than one million people living in that tiny space in the middle of nowhere, Still, with all that evidence before their eyes, they decided that God can't be trusted. And so they defined their reality around satisfaction of temporary desires instead and turned their back. Now, it's obvious that we should do the opposite to them. Obvious. But gee, it's scary to do so, isn't it? It requires us to trust God's word 
for the next meal. Yes, but for eternity also. And there were only two men in that entire generation of Israelites who managed to do that. Who managed to trust. Now they're interesting men to look at and they're worth our time to examine them. But I want to, I want to finish our time together with a man, the example of a man who lived closer to our time who exemplified continual trust in God's provision. This man died, he was buried in Australia. His name was John Gibson Patton. You might have heard of him. Scottish missionary who left his beloved father behind to be a missionary. Patton travelled to the New Hebrides in 1858 from Scotland. His work in what we now as know as New Caledonia today would see the conversion of that nation, the saving of thousands of lives from slavery and the education of millions more. But as he was raising money to go, nobody knew that that would be the outcome of his journey. In fact, the last thing anyone knew about the New Hebrides was that the last two missionaries to go there were killed and eaten by the natives on the beach while their transport ship before it had weighed anchor and left. And Patton was about to be the next attempt and he was taking his new wife with him, married just 14 days earlier. Tasty snack for the natives. As one at the support raising events, a certain Mr Dixon just couldn't come at the abject foolishness of risk of such a mission. He exploded publicly, declaring the obvious fact that everyone seemed to be ignoring. The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! And to this, Patton calmly responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. There it is. There it is. That's the confidence of a Christian who looks to the Lord. Beyond the circumstance, who looks to the Lord, who does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. No fear for life or death in this world and the sure satisfaction of all our desires for eternity in a resurrection body given at the proper time along with all other things that look to the Lord. Oh, I want that confidence. Don't you? And when that day comes, for when it does come, Alongside the voice of John G. Patton and Mr. Dixon, we're going to hear every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Why will we say this? 
for he opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. God be the praise.